husband's a tomboy growing up. That was a tomboy. Single tomboy. Tomboy. I'm a bloody tomboy. When her six-year-old daughter first called herself a tomboy, Lisa Selen Davis had to ask herself what that word meant. She had certainly heard it before, and she'd even grown up during what she calls the last heyday of the tomboy, the 1970s. But what does it really mean, especially in light of today's rapidly changing gender categories? Davis launched a deep exploration of gender and gender nonconformity and discovered the tomboy label is both empowering for some and problematic for others, as she lays out in her new book, Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to be Different. Today, Davis gives us the history of tomboys, because although the word has kind of got on a fashion these days, some do still use it, and for a mostly out-of-fashion word, its history is surprisingly relevant for us today. It gets at the heart of some key gender questions that cut across transgender and cisgender experiences, challenging us to reconsider not only how we describe ourselves, but also how we raise our children and even how we look at the toy section of the local department store, you know, with toys that are for boys or for girls, quote-unquote. And in addition to Davis's interview today, we'll also hear short clips from YouTube creators Kelsey Jones and The Fruit of Elam, who engage with the word and give us glimpses into their struggles. That's what we're talking about today. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. <laughs> History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. This podcast is sponsored by Audible, where you can listen to today's book, Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to be Different by Lisa Selen Davis. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. You'll support both Lisa and us at the same time and get some good listening while you do it. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash btnewberg. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g for your free audiobook. All right, we're going to talk to Davis in a second, but before we get started, I want to let you know about a great podcast that may be of special interest to today's listeners. It's called She Effing Did That. That's right, that's the name of the podcast. Do you know who really started rock and roll? Do you know who the first Indian-born woman was to go to space? Are you upset that you don't know these significant women in history? We're here to help. I'm Layla. And I'm Gia. And we're the hosts of the feminist podcast, She Effing Did That. Where we share stories of the impactful women we never learned about in history class. Or just don't know enough details about. Every Sunday, we swap stories with a themed cocktail in hand to celebrate our featured women of the week. So bring a friend and raise a glass to the women who run the world. Their stories might even motivate you to do the same. Listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to inspirational women on the internet. Cheers! Because she effing did that. 
Gia and Layla tell kick-butt stories about kick-butt women. And I might add, that's women regardless of what sex was assigned at birth. So check out She Effing Did That. All right, with no further ado, let's get into our interview for today. Lisa Selen Davis, author of the new book, Tomboy. Ready, Lisa? Yeah, let's do it. So first of all, what is a tomboy? Well, a tomboy, in theory, would be a girl who dresses like a boy, who acts like a boy, plays with boys. But it turns out that it's very hard to be precise about what it means to dress like a boy or act like a boy, or these days, even what is a boy. It turns out to be a very hard question to answer because what is boy typical or girl typical has changed so many times over the years. And tomboy became a positive term in the mid 19th century, instead of it being an insult for girls, it became, oh yes, girls should act like boys. And by the end of the 19th century, there were already articles saying, don't call a girl a tomboy because it implies that the stuff she's doing, climbing trees or being independent, being strong, being brave, that those things belong to boys. And what's interesting is a hundred years later, there were still articles arguing that that same thing of like this word is sexist instead of saying that it's normal for girls to act that way it's saying we need to give girls a special label when they do things that are well within their rights or their biological purview or Mm -hmm. whatnot to do i would wear like cargo shorts and a really thick top t-shirt that like came from the boys section I don't really consider myself a tomboy or anything, but I really don't like dressing up. Like, I dress how I want to, whether I look like a boy, whether I look like a girl. I didn't like what other, most girls liked. I liked trucks, skateboards, action figures, and PlayStation, bike riding, and you want to do all this dudely stuff. I think in the last 10 or 15 years, that word is now almost fully out of favor. So what is the controversy there? Well, there are, the the first part is whether or not you should give a separate label to a girl for not acting like a stereotypical girl, right? Or or a sign sex girl who could potentially be, you know, a boy, right? Right. Who could identify as a boy. Right. Yeah. The first controversy is, do we need to tell kids that they are different, that we need to handle them differently, see them differently, because they are not abiding by culturally constructed gender norms. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that makes a lot of like feminist moms mad that, you know, why should, why are you telling my kid that she's somehow different than a typical female because of her behavior or, sure. or her sweatpants? Right. And then a lot of people started hating, objecting to the word vociferously in the beginning of this century too. And then um, as well as several times in the in the 20th century. And as I said, at the end of the 19th Um, and then more recently, as there's been more awareness of and acceptance of trans youth, there's been the objection of trans boys being told you're just a tomboy. You're not trans. Right. And so it's it's in a way nobody likes it, (laughs) but it actually did so much work for so long. It allowed so many girls to have freedom, to be who they were, to do what they want, 
to not feel that they had to conform to gender norms because there was a word for who they were. Right. And it 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 helped people leave them alone. And it sounds like uh, from reading your book, it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that while honoring those who like and have used you know, the label tomboy to describe themselves, you're not necessarily advocating that this is the label that we should use. You're more using this as a way to explore this gender sphere. Is that right? Yeah, I have no particular fondness for the word tomboy. I do think when we're recalibrating language and objecting to language and being offended by language, that it's very important to understand historical context of these words. So you can hate the word tomboy, but you should know that it was for many girls, a, a like get out of jail card. <laughs> and it did, it did, it did a lot of important work. And the question now is, do we just call a girl like mine a girl? I mean, it was very, very hard for her to claim that label. It still is. They, the people desperately want to slap a different label on her. So what's limiting and what's liberating? And how do you have a word that's, you know, how do you, how do you liberate with one word when it feels limiting to someone else? And I think this is you know, a discussion and a debate we should be having. But I think we've gone from we have the word girl and we have the word tomboy to we have the word girl and anyone can claim it. And then we have dozens of other words. And for many people, that does feel liberating. And for other people, it feels like it's narrowed the word girl into this incredibly stereotypical kind of human being that that really girls after age seven or eight, most of them are, are not matching up, conforming that much to that narrow vision anymore. Sure. I think I would have personally liked to have that uh, get out of jail free card myself when I was growing mm -hmm. up as a straight cisgender boy. But as you mentioned in your book, there's not necessarily a good analog on the boy side. Maybe we can get back to that a little bit later. But for now, let's stick with the tomboy idea, because I want to ask you, um, you make clear in your book that there's actually more than one kind of tomboy. So tell me about the difference between those who reject girl stuff versus those who actually embrace it, but also like the boy stuff too. Yeah, some psychologists who, who have studied tomboys have broken them down into sometimes tomboys and always tomboys or feminine tomboys or androgynous tomboys and masculine tomboys. There are lots of people trying to classify at a more granular level. And one thing that they noticed was that the, the most sort of common way to be this tomboy was to like boy, quote unquote, boy stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's just pretend there's air quotes around that all the time. Yep. Um, that they liked, you know, sports and they liked tree climbing and they liked playing with boys and they liked comfortable clothing but they didn't necessarily dislike girls and they might still like to play with Barbies or at least microwave Barbies, which I guess is what most, most kids like to destroy Barbies, <laughs> even if they like them. And so most of them were more straddling this pink blue divide 
than crossing it all the way. And then there were also kids who were embracing masculinity, but also rejecting femininity, didn't want to have anything to do with girls and didn't want to do, have anything to do with what was marked as girly, which of course is somewhat arbitrary, mm -hmm. like pink or sparkles or hearts or um, unicorns. <laughs> um, yeah. So the idea though, that there is a hard divide between these two types of people instead of a spectrum or a sphere, if you like that shape better. Um, and the pressure to classify and slot kids into a category instead of just really encouraging them to explore is still problematic to me. You know, I think it's fascinating how much we need to classify, but I think we should all challenge ourselves to not impose our adult ideas of gender onto children. And really, whether this kid is a sometimes or an always, a masculine or a feminine, that could change over the course of a childhood and a lifetime. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course, it's very difficult to um, really suss out you know, what the signals are that are coming from a young child, too, because they don't have the vocabulary yet. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, okay, so <laughs> I didn't have any sisters, so I uh, did not have the opportunity to microwave a Barbie, but that's now on my <laughs> bucket list. Um, yeah, <laughs> so, it's never too late. <laughs> that's right, right. I, I'm, I'm going on 42, and I'm just going back to that childhood experience to fill in some <laughs> empty boxes. I remember my mom and I would go through the McDonald's drive-thru, and she'd be like, okay, Kelsey, what do you want? She wanted to know what toy I wanted. I wanted the boy toy. Um, and that was always really weird for her. I could do what the girls do, and I could do what the boys do, okay? That wasn't fair as a kid to feel embarrassed for, you know, wanting to go skateboarding. Dirt or not, I really don't care about getting my hands dirty. This is a history show, of course. So, and, and you do devote a, a big part of your book to the history of this idea, tomboys, and you mentioned it a little bit already. So can you just give us the super short version of how this concept, the tomboy, developed and then how it changed to what it is today? Just maybe a little bit more granular detail than what we got earlier. Yeah, the word tomboy was coined sometime in the 16th century, mm -hmm. and it was meant to describe an extra boisterous, rowdy boy because Tom is from male type like tomcat or tom tom turkey tom turkey yeah tom <laughs> not, turkey i've not heard thing. that one before <laughs> um so it was describing someone as an insult like a misbehaving boy hmm. and not long after that it started being applied to grown women um who were had a sexual appetite that one might have thought of at the time as like a man's sexual appetite so lascivious or lustful women but about a hundred years after it's coined, it starts getting applied to girls who act like boys. And it's also an insult. It's a way of saying you're doing the wrong thing. Okay. But interestingly, you know, there were so many girls acting that way that they needed a word for them. And a couple hundred years after that, it starts becoming a compliment. And not, not only a compliment, but a kind of method of child rearing that was encouraged. Mm -hmm. The idea that there should be this kind of boyhood for girls um, that develops in the 19th century for a variety of reasons. Um, 
some of them pretty shady, <laughs> but they, the idea is that the healthiest way to grow up for a girl is to have a kind of boyhood mm-hmm. and starts becoming a, a positive term. And then, as I said, by the end of that century, it becomes so common for girls to act in these quote unquote boyish ways that people start saying, let's stop calling them tomboys. Girl is fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, it's okay for them to act in these boyish ways at this time, so long as they grow up to be proper girls, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. Right. In all of the literature about why you should raise your daughter as a tomboy, it is important that it's a phase. Mm-hmm. And, and some of these publications say straight out, the tomboy phase must end by 14. I mean, girls entered puberty much later back then on average. Mm. Um, so it's sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 13, but always the idea is once you become a woman mm-hmm. um, by way of menstruation, it needs to end so that you can be, uh, you know, assume your proper gender role. So yeah. whatever, whatever freedom you've experienced as a tomboy child in the 19th century, the message is you do not get to continue that once you grow up. Right. So that became part of the concept of womanhood in the West at that time. Basically, you know, it was stepping stones to becoming a proper woman. Yes, because, you know, upper middle class and middle class white women in the 19th century, their ideal was a frail woman confined to the domestic sphere, right? Who mm-hmm. was submissive and really the complete opposite of a tomboy. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a tough thing to give these girls all this freedom in childhood and then insist that they surrender it. So one of my theories is that feminism, whether we call it white feminism or first wave feminism, mm-hmm. um, because tomboy was a very white concept, mm-hmm. um, that, that these girls raised as tomboys really went on to become the first feminists. You mentioned white a couple of times there. Tell me a little bit about what that racial divide is. Yeah, there's a lot of racism woven into 19th century tomboyism. One aspect is that the birth rate was declining and there was a real panic among American-born whites, you know, that as immigration from other countries continued and increased, that whites would lose their power. Mm -hmm. But that kind of cult of domesticity that prized frailty and submissiveness in women wasn't very good for their health. So a lot of wanting to raise girls as tomboys was so that they would be healthy enough for procreating when they were of age. In In addition, most of the tomboy heroines of 19th century literature, like Joe March or Capitola Black. By the way, Joe March is, of course, the beloved character from Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, while Capitola Black is from a work perhaps lesser known today, but no less important, called The Hidden Hand by E-D-E-N Southworth. Nice initials, by the way. As someone who likes to use initials in their name, I'm like, wow, you really bring those out. Anyway, back to the interview. Most of the tomboy heroines of 19th century literature, like Joan March or Capitola Black, take on these aspects of stereotypical blackness. So they're usually dark haired 
and the, the girly girls are blonde and they usually are dark skinned from running around in the sun and mm. the girly girls are fair. And interestingly, Capitola Black, who's the star of kind of the first, not only the first tomboy literature, but the first bestseller in this country, gets what they call tomboy tamed at the end. And she gets married and becomes a proper woman. And she marries someone named Grayson. So she goes from being Capitola Black to being like her name is even lightened. Right. And you know, and girls, working class girls or enslaved girls, mm -hmm. you know, who were who were strong because they had no choice. They weren't tomboys. That was just their fate. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was it being a tomboy was a form of white privilege. Yes, that makes sense. OK, so moving out of the 19th century, then as we move into the 20th, things do begin to change a little bit. Show me that picture. Yeah. So in the. In the 20th century, there are the tomboy kind of comes in and out of popular culture and popular consciousness. And my theory is that it has to do with war. So every time mm. there's war and men go off and women fill in their roles and then they get a taste of empowerment, feminism and freedom, yep. and then they raise their kids that way. And then often their kids rebel. Um, and, and what happens in the middle of the 20th century is our consumer culture grows mm -hmm. and we start gendering childhood in a new way. So we start having, we start applying gender to colors, for instance, mm -hmm. and we have more, the clothes of the twenties during women's liberation had been like very straight, you know, the opposite of the 19th century corsets. But in the 50s, you know, they go back to being really hourglass shaped and really making it hard to move. So mm -hmm. you see these gender roles literally woven into the fabric of clothes and, and baked in, into the materials of toys as the zeitgeist changes for what is appropriate for women. Yeah, for sure. And part of that is the development, not just of a particular kind of woman, right, that is this quote unquote tomboy, but also the changing development of the concept of womanhood itself, right? So one of the examples that our listeners might be familiar with, we did a whole series on Germany and how gender roles changed between the Weimar Republic era between the wars which was one of the most sexually uh, progressive cultures mm -hmm. at the time in the West, mm -hmm. to one of the most sexually oppressive cultures, of course, when the Third Reich took over. And mm -hmm. um, what you saw during that time is a lot of people critical of what was called the Neue Frau or New Woman, the flappers would be a good example, mm -hmm. saying that they're becoming masculine, they're like mm -hmm. boys, they're dressing like boys, they're smoking, which only boys do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, but really, in hindsight, we can see that it was actually them discovering a new way to be women rather than exploring, like, I'm a different kind of woman. Right. The The idea that there is one way to be a man or woman is is an important idea for people who are in charge and, <laughs> and want yeah. things to unfold in a certain way. But of course, we all know now that there are like there's every possible way to inhabit those roles and that we're when our 
range of normal is widened, it's very, very threatening to some people. Mm-hmm. But we see now, right, with our expanding understanding of language and gender that when people are presented with options, they often take them. Mm-hmm. But I, one of the things I found fascinating in the research was uh, like looking at the history of women's dress and that as those clothes got more masculine in the, in the flapper era, it, that also became the beginning of the that that was the beginning of the dieting industry uh-huh. and and scales become more common for consumers to buy because those clothes only looked good on really really thin women mm-hmm. so this much more subtle way of controlling women's bodies becomes part of the popular culture during that era there are always these much more insidious methods of controlling us and the more freedom we have, the more more hidden those messages. So we might not even know that, which is part of my argument about what's happened to childhood, that we think there's all this liberation for children. We have Title IX and girls can play sports and Mattel makes gender fluid dolls Mm -hmm. and everything's fine without people seeing that. In fact, since the late 80s, we now have every possible thing that you can purchase every possible activity is divided into boy and girl without us questioning where that came from or why and and especially in the electronics you know where you have to choose a gender in some electronics and then your whole world is filtered by that so that happens every time there's liberation Mm -hmm. a more insidious way of rolling people back from that liberation works its way into the popular culture. I mean, one thing I I think is really important going back to the early 20th century is that until a hundred years ago, children were mostly having what we would think of now as gender neutral childhoods, especially young children. So Uh boys and girls were wearing dresses. They all had long hair. Their sex was not emphasized because The way we understood sex, gender, and sexuality there was that they were all intertwined. So to talk about a kid being male or female was to think about them being later sexual beings, which was repugnant to adults and and still is Mm -hmm. in ways that lead to other kinds of misunderstandings. And so it just wasn't emphasized. Kids were dressed according to age, not sex. Mm-hmm. And as our understanding of sexuality evolved, that it was separate from those other categories. And as we began to classify gay people as their own group, the zeitgeist about parenting changed. And psychologists, many of them believed that it was not okay to be gay. Not all of them, but many of them mm-hmm. felt that way. And so they started encouraging parents to emphasize sex differences in children to make sure those children grew up to be straight. Yes, I'm and, glad you brought that up. That's a super important point in your book. Yeah, so, so today when we are dressing our children and when we are saying to our sons, you know, oh, that's a girl's color, or that's a girl's toy. Mm-hmm. We are reinforcing that homophobia that led to this tradition and reinforcing the idea that there is something wrong about whatever is marked as feminine, no, no matter how arbitrarily it's marked mm-hmm. that way. And I, I think it's really important for parents to know 
that our idea of boy typical and girl typical, a lot of it is rooted in homophobia. Yeah. And this is kind of where we get back to, again, that there's no positive analog on the other side of the coin for a tomboy. Tomboy, uh, you could praise a girl by saying, oh, she's a tomboy, but you can't praise a boy in our culture by saying he's a Nancy boy or a sissy, right? Exactly. Like that was not my experience as a cisgender boy growing up. I remember there was only one cartoon I was not allowed to watch as a child, and that was Gem and the Holograms. <laughs> wow. Because that was a girl Why show. Why not? Because that was a girl show. But I liked right. it because of the face paint. I thought it was awesome. I was like, that's really cool. I like the color. <laughs> and I mean, and, and again, it's absurd to think that you wouldn't like something because it's starring girls. Mm -hmm. And that is the message over and over to boys. I referenced this op-ed in the book by, I think her name is Shannon Hale, and she writes the Princess in Black series, which is a, it's a really nice series. And she goes around the country giving readings in schools. And often the school librarians make this announcement like, girls, you're in for a treat and boys, you're just going to have to suffer through this. And then the boys kind of sheepishly come up after and say, well, I liked that story. And they think something's wrong with them. Right, because of the framing. And their parents are like, well, I'm not going to buy you that book. It's for girls. When it's not for girls, it's about girls, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're, we're teaching them that girl stuff is bad. And we're teaching them that there's some pathology in their being interested in it. And that's why, you know, my solution to that is stop saying it's girl stuff and boy stuff. Girls read books starring boys all the time. And boys should read books that star girls. And there should be, I just had a piece out in Romper, I think yesterday, that's about the need for books starring feminine boys. I mean, full adventure stories, you know, with just the boy happens to be feminine. Maybe mm -hmm. he wears nail polish and has long hair because yeah, that's cool. we know in our hearts that femininity doesn't just belong to females and masculinity doesn't just belong to males. We all know it because we've met lots of human beings who show us. We incorporate that stuff in all different ways. Mm -hmm. And we really, I really need kids to get that message, but it becomes so, it becomes so important for adults to teach these kids how to be a boy or a girl in these proper ways, even though they don't, they don't know they're doing that. Mm -hmm. And I, I would hope that if they knew where that tradition came from, that they would be less interested in continuing it. Yeah. Well, I still watch Gem and the Holograms anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. So can you tell me, just to finish out our history, bring us up to the present by just telling us that shift, first in the 70s, where, as you say, is kind of the last heyday of the tomboy, and then to this hypergendering of the marketing. Yeah, so we had this sort of feminist tom tomboy heyday of the 70s when there were more women interested in feminism and it became part of our zeitgeist. You know, there was also Phyllis Schlafly. It's not like everyone was a feminist, <laughs> but 
And there was a movement once again to raise little girls with the idea that they could have access to what was marked as for boys. And one of the examples of this that I love from a historian named Joe Pauletti, his work on the, on the history of gendering kids' clothes is fascinating. And she found that in the Sears catalogs in the 1970s, there were boys to girls size conversion charts mm -hmm. so that girls could shop in the boys section. And of course there was no girls to boys size conversion charts to say, exactly. oh, would your son like one of these pink frilly dresses? Here's what size you should buy. But that was the last era of full unisex clothes, which of course were boys clothes, but where I and all my friends were, boys and girls were dressed in striped t-shirts and corduroys and we all had bowl haircuts and we looked very much the same mm -hmm. and and that was that was on purpose too right at the time i always think it's about what's going to sell right so that <laughs> becomes a popular zeitgeist of feminism and then marketers realize like oh i can make money mm -hmm. by presenting these boys clothes as something girls can buy too okay so so what happens, several things happen after that. There's a recession, so we need to sell more stuff. There's prenatal testing, so you can know the sex of your baby mm -hmm. before birth. There's feminist backlash and Reaganism. All of these forces converge to roll back the gains maybe that, that some women had made to push back against those forces, as Susan Faludi chronicled in that book, Backlash. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the 90s and you get girl power, mm -hmm. um, yeah. mostly with the Spice Girls, but there are other media role models. So what you get is a kind of if the 70s were about masculine girls who were strong and powerful, the 90s, right, which mm -hmm. is when those children born in the 70s like start having children of their own. The 90s is the next wave, which is girls can be strong and powerful and feminine and you don't have to be masculine and so once again for some it's a kind of liberation mm -hmm. and for others it's extremely limiting because it's still very focused on a girl's appearance and it's very much about prettiness yeah absolutely and for any listeners that are uh, far younger than me us, <laughs> for a more modern like a super modern kind of version of that i think of gal gadot's role as wonder woman where yeah. she she kicks butt, but she's also super elegant, right? Or another yeah. example, maybe Cardi B, who's super sexually aggressive in her lyrics, but also extreme, almost exaggeratedly feminine in her appearance. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I when I when we saw Wonder Woman, I was like, where are her muscles? Like, why is this <laughs> woman not ripped? You know, like she's really quite little nice little wrist bones and I was like I'd like to see Wonder Woman really physically I'd like to see it in her muscles because that is still taboo mm -hmm. you know for women to be ripped mm. and some women are ripped you know so I, I would think Wonder Woman would <laughs> that's my criticism like let's just have her have some guns man <laughs> but, <laughs> right I know right okay well we're starting the movement now we need yeah. we need a hashtag <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Women were, yeah. ripped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you start to realize that you really like boys as a woman, not everybody, but I did, I wouldn't get the attention from the other boys like some of the girls were getting. 
when you decide you want to dress up and get all cute, everybody want to compliment you. Oh, girl, you look cute. I know you can dress up like this and get all girly and cute and stuff. You trying to say I don't look cute any other day? Like, am I just ugly like six days out of the week? So now that we've got that historical background, I want to ask you, what do you think about using the word nowadays? In your opinion, and everybody's going to have a different opinion on it, right? But in your opinion, is tomboy something that is still fit for today? Or is it fit for the dustbin? Little of both? What do you think? I think if you like that word, you should use that word. And you should know its history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in 1906, a writer wrote this book, Autobiography of a Tomboy, and she asks in the beginning, why is it not called Tom Girl? Mm -hmm. And that never caught on. And I still don't think the category of girl has widened to include masculine girls. I still think they're being told, you need a new label. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the human need to classify can't be tamped down. So what word are we going to use or are we going to become so generous with our idea of what a girl is that it can include the masculine or always, you know, tomboy? And I don't know the answer to that question. It goes back to, is it liberating to have like 72 gender identities and to teach kids about that? Or is it liberating to say boys and girls look all kinds of ways, have all kinds of bodies, you know, and, mm -hmm. and then they're, you know, a very small percentage of kids don't fit into those categories no matter what. And it's really this question of how should we be talking to kids about this? And I think the most important thing for parents to understand is that when they make decisions based on sex, uh, the sex of their child, they might not be aware of why we divided things into boy stuff and girl stuff and, and personality traits into boy typical and girl typical. And that we really need to work to widen the range of normal because it's just been artificially narrowed. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't even imagine for a boy, you know, a boy like makeup or dolls and all that pressure to be manly and stuff. It's just being told you can't do certain stuff because like, oh, do they? Uh, okay, so uh, we're getting close to time. So I just got one more thing that I want to talk to you about, but it's a big one. So I want to drill down much deeper into the trans experience interacting with this word tomboy. As you mentioned yeah. before, there are many uh, who identify as boys, but were assigned sex as girls. And sometimes they are told that you're not a boy, you're just a tomboy. And I can only imagine how diminishing that must feel. So I, I want to ask you, what would you like to say to any female to male trans listeners out there who have been diminished by being told that they are just a tomboy? It's a good question. And, you know, there's, there's a whole chapter in there about tomboy versus trans boy, about language, about the history of pathologizing gender nonconformity. And I try to get to 
you know, is being a tomboy about behavior mm-hmm. and which is again, why, why, why do we need, why do we need a special name for a girl mm-hmm. who just doesn't match up to gender norms other than, you know, saying congratulations <laughs> um, to that, to that child. Um, I think that for parents, they get very confused because they think a child's behavior is the same as identity. And they assume that if a child, a young child isn't matching up to gender norms, that it means something big. And what I found was that the stories I collected from people who identified in many, many different ways as adults, that their childhoods were really quite similar. And that childhood gender nonconformity is not necessarily predictive of sexual orientation or gender identity. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And we don't know who they're going to be later on. If you have a child who is in real distress over their gender, that's not just, quote unquote, being a tomboy, right? Mm-hmm. That's having a problem that needs tending to. Mm. And I think it's really important for parents to be open to multiple uh, possibilities for their children, whether they match up to gender norms or not, because there are trans men who were not tomboys and there are trans men who were tomboys. Mm-hmm. So some of so, some people come out as trans in their 80s. Some people come out as trans when they're three. And it's very important to listen to people and to, to facilitate them and let them see who they become and how they develop. But it's also important to not confuse behavior with identity and to really try to open up as as much of the pink-blue divide to both sides of that to kids because healthy human development requires having the skill sets that the boys' toys and girls' toys help develop, having the personality traits that quote-unquote masculinity and femininity embody, and being able to be comfortable being friends with men and women, boys and girls, all that stuff is really important. So I often feel that the kind of obsession with labeling children and drawing lines between their behavior and their future gets in the way of the more important conversation about how we've hypergendered childhood. Hmm. And I think for many of the trans people I talked to, they had wonderful tomboy childhoods because the word kept people from bothering them. Hmm. It, it, again, it was that get out of jail card. Mm-hmm. It was good to be a tomboy. And then later on, when they were getting closer to puberty or after puberty, and they were like, I don't, I want to go back to how it was. I felt liberated as a tomboy and I feel oppressed as a, as a woman. It didn't work for them anymore. And some of that has to do with the expectation that it will subside. Mm -hmm. For some people, they're going to want to live that way forever. Other people are going to have had a different kind of childhood and want to live differently later. So it's really, it's for me, the important thing is stop calling it boy stuff and girl stuff. Stop calling this personality traits boy and girl and really, really, really let kids explore and don't freak out if your kid is not acting the way you expected them to based on their sex, because their body is only a predictor really of how other people will treat them. 
and the expectations other people will have of them. It's not a predictor of who they're going to be attracted to or how they're going to identify. Right. It's just a predictor of stereotypes. And you just accept and love them for who they are. 100%. Well, thank you. That I think that's a great place to end it for today. Um, any final thoughts that you'd like to add or let our listeners know about? Oh, great. Well, one message I'm really trying to get out to people is because I get notes from people sometimes saying my child is gender nonconforming and I'm worried. And I like to tell them about the research that shows that gender nonconforming kids, and by that, I mean kids who do not abide by gender norms. I'm not talking about identity. I'm talking about behavior. Okay. That those kids are more successful academically. They tend to be more flexible and egalitarian. They tend to be more accepting of other people's differences and they tend to be more creative. So if you have a gender non-conforming child that is a, a child not abiding by stereotypes and your own expectations based on their bodies, you won. <laughs> and you do not have, you don't That's have to spend thing. all of your time <laughs> undoing the harmful messages about gender from the marketplace and the culture. So it's very important not to be worried. And, you know, is that kid going to be trans? Could be. Is that kid going to be gay? Very well, maybe. Is that kid going to be cisgender straight? Maybe. But the great thing is your child doesn't feel limited and you're lucky. All right. Where can listeners find you if they have questions? Oh, they are welcome to contact me on Twitter at Lisa Selen Davis and Instagram at Lisa Selen Davis. And I'll be doing a panel at the, the center, which is New York's LGBTQ community center on October 21st with a bunch of people who are in the book who okay. identify as a butch, lesbian, genderqueer, non-binary. And we're going to talk about the relationship between tomboy childhoods and adult identity or later identity. Um, so they can tune into that if they want also. Okay, right on. Well, Lisa Selen Davis, thank you very much for being on the show. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Brandon, for having me. It was great to talk to you. That was Lisa Selen Davis, author of Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to be Different. You can find the book wherever you get books. Or you can listen to it as an audiobook on Audible at audibletrial.com slash btnewberg. We also heard clips today from YouTuber Kelsey Jones, whose channel is K Jones, and from The Fruit of Elam, who can be found on YouTube at Elam's Eye. Links in the episode notes. A big thank you to them for giving permission to use clips from their videos. Check them out on YouTube for more. Thanks everyone for listening. If you like what we're doing on this show, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. You can also support us on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as whatever you want. For example, maybe an Egyptian king or queen. Did you know that the queens wore beards as symbols of royal authority? How's that for tomboy style? I'll draw you as whatever you want, and I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, I'll see you next time, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex.
Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.